Well, um, I should say, um, last couple of Sundays I've been out at um, Hurstbridge in the morning, and uh, yeah, Oliver too, he's been out every, all three in a row, he'll be coming here next week, isn't that right, Oliver, uh, in the morning. Uh, Bron was out today, and uh, we're very, very encouraged by what is going on out there. The people are coming um, to worship the Lord and new people, and uh, it's very, very exciting what he's doing. And we want to thank the Elton folk who haven't been out there yet, but who really have been praying and supporting what's going on in Hurstbridge. We're very grateful to you. Please keep praying for us as we open up that new campus um, for the glory of God in Hurstbridge. Now, um, during this week, um, a, 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 an event happened um, in the United States. A man died whom I have known, I feel like I've known all my life. His name was Billy Graham. And uh, I want to ask you tonight, who here has been directly or indirectly influenced by the life of Billy Graham? Wow, even, even in the uh, younger congregation, there have been many, many, maybe half of us have been influenced directly by the life of this one man. And uh, in this morning's congregation, it was amazing um, to see how many people had been influenced by him. I remember as a, as a young child, um, listening to my mother, mother and father, they'd have the radio on a Sunday morning in the hour of decision, and uh, Billy Graham would be preaching the gospel. And if ever there was a voice that was anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel, it was his. When he spoke, millions listened. And apparently, maybe we can have a slide there of uh, Billy. Um, is he gone? There he is. Um, in his young days, middle age, and then older days. He was almost 100 years of age. He came to Melbourne in the 1950s, and he filled the MCG um, with the biggest crowd ever in the history. And it's not likely to be broken again because they put regulations in, and they don't allow 135,000 people in the MCG anymore. But many, many, many people met Jesus there. So I give thanks for the life of this man, and I pray that the Lord raises up many others who will have an equal impact on the earth. Anyway, we're moving from Billy Graham now to the life of Jesus. Um, we're going to talk today about um, Jesus' baptism and his temptation. We're going to look at this book of Mark through the eyes of 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as Jesus did. And we're doing this because uh, as today, as always, there have been those who have claimed to be in Jesus and they have not walked like Jesus. So the best thing we can do to get clarity, to see how we should live our lives, is to, to watch the one who lived the perfect life. Walk as he walked. Put our footsteps into his footsteps and follow him as best we can. And we can do that by looking at his life story. And in particular, in the life story of Mark. Perhaps sometimes as we look at how Jesus lived, and then we look back at ourselves, it can be a painful thing as we see the deficit that we have in him, uh, between us and him. So we have read our passage more or less. We've seen it on the screen. And I want to particularly look at verses 9 to 13 tonight in Mark chapter 1, if you have your Bibles there, because we're going to go back and forward into that chapter. One of the things I like about Mark as, as a writer is that he's factual. And he mentions people and places and events that really did happen. 
So he talks about Nazareth, he talks about Galilee, and he talks about Jordan. And if you go today to Nazareth, there's a town there called Nazareth. Apparently it's not that great, but it's still there. Uh, 2,000 years later, and they still call it Nazareth. You want to go to the river, Jordan, still there. How many people have seen the river Jordan? Anybody? Yes? Have you been baptized there by any chance? I think no. Uh, it seems to be a goal of a lot of people to be baptized there. But they're still there, still flowing, and it's still called Jordan. And so is the lake, the lake of Galilee is still called the Lake of Galilee, and it's still got fish in it, and um, it's factual. Contrast this with the Book of Mormon, for instance. And it mentions a civilization in North America uh, with names and places and peoples that have never, ever, ever been discovered, not even a trace. There is no factual accuracy with that. But this makes me believe that Mark is trustworthy. Then I want us to look at what Mark brings out in these five short verses. He brings out over and over again the spiritual realm. We live in, a, in what appears to be a three-dimensional or four-dimensional, if you include, include time, world. And uh, Mark is intimating here that there is another dimension, at least one other dimension, and that is the spiritual realm. He mentions three spiritual beings in these five verses. He mentions Satan. He mentions the Holy Spirit, and he mentions the angels. And he mentions them in such a way that they're just a matter of fact. Like, it's just, he rushes right over it and mentions it as if it was the most normal, ordinary thing in his life, the spiritual realm. And we will see in the book of Mark, if we stick with it, over and over and over and over again, the spiritual realm is brought out in this book. And what we really see is that the Lord Jesus Christ has infinitely greater power than the realms of darkness. The realms of darkness are real. Don't muck about with them. They're real. But Christ's power is far greater. He says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's going on. It's true. It's happening all around the world. So he's factual, and he gives us a very clear glimpse of the spiritual realm. But he's also very fast. Mark is fast. His pace is phenomenal. He talks about the baptism of Jesus Christ in three verses. He just goes bang, bang, bang. Then he talks about the temptation of Jesus in two verses. If you go back into Matthew, you'll see whole portions of Scripture dedicated to both of those items. But here Mark just goes bang. And maybe that's why we say at the beginning of a race, on your marks, get set, go. <laughs> Maybe that's where that came from. Now, you're supposed to say everything truthfully in a sermon. I'm only making that up. Yeah, so um, he always uses the word immediately or once, at once, you know, as if everything had to go really, really, really fast. And so even though he does that, he tells us some very striking things about the life of Christ, and we can bring them out, we can tease them out. And the first thing I want us to look at tonight in this portion of Scripture, is the baptism of Jesus. Now, um, we'll stop and mention it, even though Mark hardly stops. And uh, it's very, very appropriate because today was our first baptismal class of 2018 at Niora Road, and we had a great crowd in there today. We had seven people at baptismal class today, which was really, really encouraging. Um, uh, I thought we were going to have one, and then I heard at the end of the service we're having two, and uh, on the way home, I heard we're having four. 
And then we ended up with seven people in class, uh, which is really, really wonderful. Um, you know, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you haven't been baptized yet? If that's the case, you're a bit of an anomaly. You know why? Because only one person in the entire New Testament is recorded as coming to Christ and then not being baptized. And that was the thief on the cross. And Bishop J.C. Ryle said this. He said, only one so that none should despair and only one so that none should presume. So if you're not baptized tonight, I encourage you to obey the Lord Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. Follow him in the waters of baptism. Not only obey him. He, said, he didn't say, um, do what I say, not what I do. He said, do what I do and, do what I, and follow me because I do what I say I do. So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have two more classes. Next Sunday at 3 o'clock, Nyora Road here. Um, please come to that if you feel that the Lord is exercising you to be baptized. Then on the 11th, we'll have that baptismal service. And um, we will have some testimonies as to what the Lord is doing in people's lives. Now, the question is often asked, why was Jesus baptized? And, uh, well, we go through a few answers. Well, it wasn't because he was a sinner. He didn't need to be saved. So why in the world was he baptized? But if we look and mark for the answer, we can't really find it. So this is one of those times where we're going back to Matthew to have a look. And we will find in Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, I think, let, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. So what is righteousness? Well, I believe righteousness is everything that's in absolute line with God's will. Everything that God has planned for your destiny, for the destiny of the world, is righteousness. His laws, his actions, his character, they're all righteous. And we need to get in line with that. And Jesus was positioning himself all the time in the righteousness of God. I was reading in Psalm 85, verse 3 this week, a verse which actually lines up with this. It says there that righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Isn't that amazing? That's what John the Baptist was, was doing when uh, he was going ahead of Jesus. That's what Jesus was doing when he went down into the waters of baptism. And righteousness had to go before Jesus in order for his steps to be right. And not just a bit of righteousness, but all righteousness had to go before Jesus, had to go with Jesus, had to go ahead of Jesus to um, prepare the steps for his way. And once again, I want to challenge you, if you haven't obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism yet, I encourage you to do that in the next couple of weeks coming up. I don't want to really elaborate much more on baptism right now because, as you know, there's another forum and it's at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoons. And um, I just want to say this one thing. Not only was Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, but he was giving us a wonderful example of how to initiate your ministry for God. Baptism is like that, an initiation, not only into salvation, but into the ministry that God has for you. And indeed, what the ministry that God had for Jesus. It's a right and proper initiation into the kingdom and service of God. Now, there is a, a wonderful uh, fundamental doctrine of the Christian church that comes out in these five short verses. It's amazing what's in there. And it is the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine that emerged as, as the Church of Jesus Christ began to study the Scriptures and look into what, what it said. They didn't find the word Trinity, but they discovered that here and there throughout the Bible, there are these three aspects of God all appearing at once. And how can that be? So they, as best they know, knew how, they formulated the doctrine of the Trinity. That, that is, there is God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, we find all three of them. The Son is there in the water. The Father speaks to the Son, and he says, this is my Son, and in him I am well pleased. And then the Spirit of God comes down on the Son in the form of a dove and fills him. So that, this is one of those um, collection of verses that really speak out about the Trinity. There are other branches uh, of Christendom that do not believe in the Trinity. They're a bit more like Islam, uh, where they believe in the oneness of God, and they're called Unitarian. If you ever come across that word Unitarian, you'll know that they're not Orthodox Christians. Um, Trinitarian is an Orthodox belief. So then we'll move on from that to the temptation of Christ. It's beginning to feel a little bit like Mark, isn't it? A little bit pacey, moving on from one thing to another very fast. Well, that's par for the course in Mark. And if any of you ever want to follow up on these things, you can listen to the podcast or you can ask me for my notes. Um, the temptation of Jesus, as I said before, Mark spends only a very, very short time on it. Um, two verses. But what can we learn from it? We can, I believe we can learn heaps. And I think the first thing that I saw in it is how short the time can be between a mountaintop experience and the wilderness. Maybe you're on a high today. Maybe last week you were on a high. But don't be surprised if the Lord takes you to the wilderness very shortly afterwards. Jesus was no sooner dry than the Holy Spirit led him away into the wilderness. Can you imagine the high point at which Jesus was at that point in time? He had just heard his father say, you are my son, with you I'm well pleased. Isn't it lovely when your dad tells you that? It's an amazing thing. I hope he tells you that. Jesus' father told him that. Then he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Two major things happened to Jesus. I would call that a mountaintop experience, wouldn't you? If both those things happened to you in one day, in one hour, you would pretty much feel on top of things. But then, immediately, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Verse 12, At once the Spirit sent him away out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Have you recently had a mountaintop experience? Well, don't be surprised if very soon you find yourself in that place we call the wilderness. It could happen. Satan is mocking you. He's on your case, tempting you in many, many ways. If that's the case, let's take hope from this passage. And as we talk about the passage, more and more hope will arise. I would say also that in the New Testament, um, we have two words, right? We have temptation and we have trial. And we think they're totally different words, don't we? 
but in the Greek they're not. They're exactly the same word. So the word is perasmon, and it is interchangeable. Trial, temptation, trial, temptation. So when you think about the temptation of Christ, you can think about trials as well. When you think you're being tempted as well, you can think it's a trial, something to overcome, something that can be overcome, as we'll find out later. I want to tell you just about a, a personal story. Um, I remember way back in 1996 when Andrea and I came back from Brazil. We'd been there for a couple of years as missionaries. And uh, I went through a very hard time, a very strong spiritual attack. Andrea was there to support me, and so was my mom. My dad had already passed away. And I remember going to my pastor in a very low state, and I said to him oh, what was going on in my life, and I had only faintly any hope, maybe hardly any hope. And he said, this will pass, and you will wonder one day why you ever were troubled by it. And I thought, ooh, it's all right for you. I mean, I'm going through this thing, and I can't see my way out of it. But anyway, I hung on to his words, even though I thought it was a tall order. And sure enough, it did pass. And that's the thing about temptations and trials. They've got a shelf life. They will pass. We've got some resources to get through these things. The grace of God in time of trouble. We've got the Word of God. We've got the Spirit of God. We've got the prayers of God's people. We've got God's people's presence around us. We've got many resources to get us through. We've got counselors, and we've got prayer. If you're in the wilderness today, in a very, very hard place, it's got a shelf life. Don't despair. Despair is a terrible thing. It's made up of two words, no hope. But there is hope in Christ. Don't let yourself despair. Always believe there is hope. And that's not a fantasy. It's real because Christ is our hope. So what do we know about the temptation from the book of Mark? It's tempting, <laughs> no pun intended, to move back to Matthew to check up all these things and expand upon them. But we're going to be disciplined as much as we can, and we're going to remain in Mark and learn what Mark teaches us. So what is the first thing here on my list? It's 40 days. What does 40 days have to teach us? Well, 40 days is a long time if you're not eating. 40 days is a long time if you have a headache. 40 days is a very long time if you're being tempted by the most hideous being in all the universe, relentlessly. Isn't that right? It's a very long time. It's actually 960 hours. And as I was saying this morning, that's 1,920 times longer than this sermon. And that is a long time. To be tempted by the evil one, it's over a tenth of a year, relentlessly. It's heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. And at this point, I want to bring in a glorious verse from outside of Mark, which helps us understand why Jesus went through this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Please remember it. Please apply it to your memory. Who's learning memory verses? Who's applying scripture to memory? Wonderful. Fantastic. I encourage everybody to learn memory verses. If someone comes and takes your Bible away, or in this day and age, come and take your phone away, what are you going to do for the Word of God? Where is it? Is it in your phone? 
Or is it in your heart? Is it in your head? Learn memory verses, brothers and sisters. Because then no one can take the word from you. Learn them. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Hebrews 4.15. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. What encouragement is that verse? In other words, it's saying, we have a high priest who understands completely our trials and our temptations. So we can go to him in the middle of a trial, and we can expect him to answer us. So 40 days is a long time. A long time to be tempted by the most hideous being in all the universe. And yet Jesus came through it for us. So what is the significance of the number 40? If you're a, even a little bit of a Bible scholar, you will know that 40 is one of the most popular numbers in the entire Bible. All right, 40 days and nights this, and 40 days and nights there, and 40 years here, and 40 years there, and so on and so forth. It, it appears 146 times in the Bible, the number 40. And uh, it signifies a period of testing. It can be a warning. It can be fasting. It can be a generation of man. It can be a time of humiliation. Remember that the rains fell on the, uh, in the flood of Noah for 40 days and 40 nights, signifying judgment on the earth. And I think when, when all is said and done, the number 40 actually signifies God's involvement in humanity over a range of activities. But he's actively involved. And we're coming back again to the spiritual realm. God is actively involved in our day and age. And specifically here, in this case of Jesus' temptation, I believe the number 40 is significant because it is a trial for Jesus. As I said earlier, the trial had an end. 40 finishes, and then it's day number 41. And the trial is over, and Jesus' ministry is started. What a powerful ministry. But it was started by a period of deep trial, deep temptation, which he overcame. After 40 days, the rain stopped, and the floods abated. After 40 years, the children of Israel ent entered the Promised Land. After 40 years of humiliation by the Philistines, the Lord raised up Samson, and he defeated them. After 40 days of trial, Jesus entered his, the most amazing ministry of all time. So you can, we can trust that the trials that we're going through, God has a purpose for them. That's if he ordained them, and if that, that's if he led us into them. I want us to have a look at the significance of the word desert or the word wilderness. Some Bibles say wilderness, some say desert, regarding, uh, depending on the translation. But whether it's wilderness or desert, it's an inhospitable place. It's a place of cold at night, heat in the day, hunger, thirst, loneliness, disorientation, illusions. You know, we've all seen the classical film of the Oasis, haven't we? And people thinking there's water there, they jump into it and all they get is a mouthful of sand. Deserts are a horrible place. Yet down through the years, many, many believers have written about their wilderness experience and desert experience. And they've told that it's been vitally important in their growth as Christians. Time of deep trouble, a time of anguish, a time of isolation, lack of purpose, searching for meaning. 
And some people have been tempted to say God is cruel. Why did God lead me into this terrible, terrible time? He's not stopped me going through this trial, so he must be cruel. Perhaps you've thought that, have you? It's been so long now, and I'm still in this trial. Why? God is not cruel, brothers and sisters. He has a purpose in the trial for you. I found this little paragraph by a couple from Hungary called Gabor and Adina Gretz. Uh, I thought it was worth reading to you. And it says this, What is common in the story of Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites, Jephthah, David, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, I'm sure they could go on, is that they all had a wilderness experience. Most of them didn't get into the wilderness because they had done something wrong. So they, they deserved a punishment, but rather they were there because they'd done something right, perhaps even everything right. It is an awkward reward for a godly life. So a lot of good people of God were taken to a bad place by God, yet a bad place can serve God's good purposes. A bad place can serve God's good purposes. I want us to grasp that. Now, whose initiative was it that Jesus go in the desert? Well, it was the Holy Spirit himself. He led Jesus into the wilderness. And sometimes we get the idea that we're in the wilderness because the devil put us there. Oh, that could be. But in this case, Jesus has put, or the Holy Spirit had put Jesus into the wilderness. It was his initiative. Henry Nouwen writes, Jesus had a different vision of maturity. It is the ability that willingness, it is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. It is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. And that's why some missionaries joke sometimes and they say, Lord, please don't send me to Hawaii because <laughs> they hope he will. And uh, I've heard a song one time, please don't send me to Africa. Have you heard that song? I can't remember all the words, but basically um, it's, it's just voicing the reluctance of us to be sent to hard places. But sometimes the Lord takes us there. And um, I want to ask each one of us, have we now the ability and willingness to be led to where we would rather not go? Is that me? Is that you tonight? Are you in that place? Jesus was. Immediately, he was ready to do that. Can you imagine if Jesus hadn't obeyed the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness after his baptism, would there ever have been a cross? No, there wouldn't. So basically, Jesus obeyed the Holy Spirit from the word go, and every time, every incremental step in obedience, the Bible says Jesus learned obedience. That's a mysterious text, but it's there. He obeyed. He obeyed. He obeyed until the big one. And then he still obeyed. Isn't that wonderful? He went all the way to the cross because he went to the desert with the Holy Spirit. Now, a point to ponder. If it's the Holy Spirit who is leading you into the desert, that means he's a step ahead of you. 
and that means he's with you. So apparently Jesus went into the, the desert alone, but he wasn't alone. The Holy Spirit was there with him, and the Holy Spirit wasn't the only one who was there with him. We read that certain other beings were there. First of all, we read the wild animals were there. What is the significance of the wild animals? Well, a quick look at the context of um, first century Israel would tell us that it was still the range of the Asian lion, possibly the African lion, still the range of the leopard, the hyena, and what else? The wolf, and the jackal. So in the, in the wilderness, Jesus would have been constantly aware of these creatures. Um, in fact, in 2007, an Israeli man was awoken in the middle of the night with a leopard in his kitchen chasing his cat. He wasn't thinking too quickly. He wasn't thinking that well at all because he grabbed the leopard and uh, held it down until the uh, ranger came. Anyway, that shows you that there's still leopards in Israel. Um, Jesus was with the wild animals. And I think this is an allusion to Daniel because he was the prophet who was with the wild animals and he was preserved in the middle of that. What can we draw from this? Surely we can draw from this that while Jesus was protected through his testing time, so shall we. He came out of that without a bite out of him. He wasn't mauled. He wasn't eaten. He survived. I can't think why else Mark would say he was with the wild animals, except to highlight the exposure of Jesus to all kinds of dangers and then to elevate the protection that he received. And when we're in the will of God, I believe that all those hostilities cannot touch us if we're being protected by the Holy Spirit. And not only the Holy Spirit. Who else was there with him? Uh, the Holy Spirit, the wild animals, and then it said... The angels attended him. We're back in the spiritual realm again. We're back in that other dimension. And uh, this is a very striking phrase. And the angels attended him. And once again, Mark almost casually passes the comment, and oh, the angels were there too. So ordinary, so normal. Um, imagine if that were, what would you call it? It is actually normal, by the way. But if it were perceived to be normal in our day and age. This is Mark's first mention of angels in his text. Unless you consider Satan or Lucifer to be the fallen angel, he got in first. But you may protest and say, well, it's okay for Jesus. He's the son of God. He got special attention. He got the angels. He could have commanded angels. Some, a song says he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world but he didn't. You may protest that we would never have that same treatment. We would never get the angels. But I'm delighted to disagree with you, if you would say that. Because we as believers, those who are following Jesus, have a clear promise from Scripture that we have angels attending us. Do you believe it? This is not fantasy. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to help those who will inherit salvation? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, that means you've got angels attending you, just like Jesus had. I um, asked a question this morning to the congregation, who has perceived 
angels to intervene in their lives up to this point. And some hands went up, including my own. I've had uh, help from angels um, in the past. And it was um, one of those times was absolutely life transforming. So I'm going to, did anybody here have uh, a perceived um, encounter with angels? Yes, indeed. Praise God. And I pray that all of us will one day have our eyes opened to the fact that you are now being attended by angels. Not that we worship them, but that we thank God for them. Now, just a check here. I must say that I do not believe that all wilderness experiences are as a direct result of obedience to the Holy Spirit. I believe that we can end up in the wilderness by exactly the opposite. By that I mean by disobedience to the Holy Spirit. We can put ourselves into a self-imposed wilderness where we feel isolated from God. It comes about through disobedience or sin. But please know that even there, there's a way back, and it's through repentance. Coming to Jesus and confessing our sin, asking him to forgive us, and then this time he will lead us out of the wilderness rather than lead us in. Are you in one of those wildernesses tonight? Are you in sin? The cross of Jesus still avails. The blood of Jesus Christ still is powerful to forgive us our sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he'll do it. And he'll take us out of that wilderness, that self-imposed wilderness caused by sin. I want to finish off with a very high note here from the Apostle Paul, who encourages us, all of us who are in a spiritual wilderness, of either type. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says this. Remember what, what did we say about temptation and trial? The same word. So interchange these words as we read this verse. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it true. I'm going to read it the other way now. No trial has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be trialed beyond what you can bear. But when you are trialed, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Please take courage from that. Don't bail out prematurely. Go back to that verse. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 3. And finally, Back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did, even through the wilderness. Notice it is through the wilderness. Wilderness is not a stopping place. I mean, forever. It's a place you pass through. And hopefully, like Mark, as quick as possible. We're not there too long. But the Lord will not keep us in there longer than he needs to especially when we're yielded to him. 
We stay in there a long time if we continue in sin. But from this story, we know that Jesus was victorious. And he began a wonderful ministry. He overcame the tempter, the one who set trials before him. And as a result, we are here today. And as another result, we will be in heaven today if we trust him and obey him, obey the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you did not uh, fall into temptation or not fall uh, when the temptation came. But you held your ground. You, we know from other places you just said, it is written, it is written, it is written. You went back to the word time and time again, and you overcame the devil by the word. Help us to do the same. I pray, Lord, that everyone in here will start to learn your words, that they will hide them in their hearts so that when or should someone take away the text before them, they will still know the Word of God, stored up in heart and head to support, to nourish day by day. Pray, Lord, for anyone in here today who doesn't know you yet. May there be repentance and salvation tonight. For anyone in the wilderness that you put them into, keep them there until you lead them out. For anyone in here in the wilderness because of their own sin, save them, Lord. Anyone here in the wilderness tonight because someone else's sin, Lord, heal them, rescue them, bring them out. In Jesus' name, amen.